Well, I want you to turn to Mark 16. It's a controversial passage, but I believe it's a remarkable um, account of Jesus' plans to save the world. These are Christ's final orders, Mark's version of them. But as you get there, if you have a modern uh, Bible, particularly the NIV, they've honestly listed a fact just before this passage starts. The the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. And of course, that's because all kinds of things happen to ancient documents. And things get left out, things get corrupted by copyists, even the most careful can make mistakes, and other things are vandalized quite deliberately. I don't know what happened to the original Gospel of Mark, but I'll try and make, give you a take on this as to justify what I'm going to draw out of it tonight. I once read a book called Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. And it featured characters you'll all have heard of that are still influencing our modern world to this day. Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, Charles Darwin. I wish he'd shut up. (laughs) The American educator Dewey. And the list can go on. You could probably imagine many other significant people who are still... Uh, uh, giving us experiences from beyond the grave, if you like. But we have a Savior who is ruling the world from the other side of the grave. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's in charge. He's in control. He's never abdicated his kingship. He's the Lord of everything, including all these dead men who he's going to resurrect and judge one day. And he'll tell them what's what. Now, he does this from his throne in heaven. And I was telling one of the seminars about change in church life. Um, There were two different versions of that today. Maybe you could get both and you get the whole picture. But what I was saying was that in my early ministry in Winchester, I did a series in the Gospel of Mark consecutively, Sunday by Sunday, And it turned into 90 messages. And I don't know if anybody was bored, but I'll tell you someone who wasn't. I wasn't. This is the first time I'd gone through a whole gospel in detail, thinking this is the shortest one. It shouldn't take too long. Three years was rather long. But the fact was, Jesus walked off the page again and again, week after week, into my life, and became my magnificent obsession. I loved him before that, but I adored him after I discovered the things that Mark told us about him. But what was I going to do with this last passage from Mark's Gospel? It wasn't just that it's alleged that it may not be part of the Gospel at all, which uh, is what is being described here, but it was also about what We are told we can do. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons, etc. What was I going to do with that? In a quite tight 
anally retentive church about anything supernatural. We had a, a man prominent in the church who said, these Pentecostals on one morning when he was asked to preach, we will be swinging like the, from the chandeliers if anything like that happens here. We didn't have any chandeliers, but he was really afraid about this. And all of that nonsense about speaking in other languages. At that time, I was fairly, fairly undecided myself about these matters. And that's why I told about how the big changes began to happen for me. But even so, I didn't know what I was going to do with these verses when I got to them. And it was a very eerie experience standing up in the pulpit and then doing my level best to be honest to this text. I felt strangely nervous in a way I never did before. It wasn't just that this was about supernatural things. It was about whether I could get it right and understand it clearly, which I felt I had, and also about the feedback or rather resistance I would meet while preaching it. You could have cut the atmosphere with a knife when I read that passage and then began to speak about it. But I'll tell you, it was a turning point for me because I'd worked hard on the text and I already knew this is true. This is for today and this is for us. And it wasn't long before everything began to turn around in our church to become more akin to the New Testament than it had ever been. So it's my privilege then to preach to you, not the same message I preached that night, couldn't find it, but I can probably tell you this is very close to what I discovered then and have believed ever since. So you're ready for this? Now, this evoked, as I said, strange reactions, but there's nothing wrong with being strange. It means you're different. You're different from the status quo, which is a Latin term for the mess that we're in. God knows we need help. God knows we need the invasive presence of the Holy Spirit and the felt presence of Christ's love and compassion and his impetus to reach out to others again burning in all of our hearts. Maybe that's why I saw a, a train in the sidings. Now, I've also known others who've tried to preach on this who say the same thing as I've just been saying to you, to one degree or another. Some of the people have never preached on it. I've got a big new gospel commentary on Mark by a very distinguished uh, scholar in America and he hasn't even bothered to, to com comment at all on these verses. He ends at Mark 16, verse 8. Well, let's read the text now and see what we're talking about, and then we'll try and handle it as best I can. Mark 16, verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, 
Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. It's likely the two on the walk to Emmaus. And these returned and reported it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Now, Jesus thinks big, and we invariably think small. All creation. That's an amazing phrase, isn't it? It's bigger than any of us have ever thought. But but here we go. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is the word of God. I honestly believe that in sometime in the early church, manuscript or manuscripts of Mark had been vandalized. There are many good reasons why this might have happened. It could have been embarrassing to later generations of the early church that these were, verses were there at all. Often when churches lose the founding cause and manifest evidences of Christ's work among them, they get embarrassed by any hint that we should be moving in these things. This has happened in our lifetimes in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's happened in the centuries after the Protestant Reformation. It may well have happened in the first and second century AD. But many, many people are embarrassed by the supernatural, and especially the kind of statements that are here at the end of Mark's Gospel, which I'm going to try and explain to you in a more positive fashion than that usually dealt with. Now, I believe the Lord would not allow anything to creep into his Bible, his word, that was false for centuries upon centuries. These verses are in all the Protestant versions of the Bible since the Reformation. Were we reading deceiving literature here? Were we receiving uninspired scripture, sort of creeping in on a words? I just don't believe this, and I'll try and justify that to you. What I'm convinced of is somebody didn't like these words. And I've concluded that the devil doesn't like them either. Hence my kind of uncommon anticipation and nervousness in preaching this chapter when I did all those years back. That's 30 years ago. 
So that's strange that it's still so vivid in my mind. I'm not nervous tonight, by the way. Not a, not as bit. I've got good news for you. I've got things that m- might well change your lives. But I've included, uh, concluded that the devil doesn't like them. See, liberals play scissors and paste with the Old Testament and the New Testament ever since the mid-19th century. They're always telling us, this is not Scripture. This ought to, to be there. This book has been assembled in the wrong order. There's, a, there's apocryphal elements in this part of the Old Testament. We don't have to believe that. We can't give credibility to that. Well, the one thing that came to me when I was born again and started studying the Bible with a teenage group was the testimony of the Holy Spirit that this Scripture, these Scriptures are divinely inspired. And I've never had any good reason not to believe that. I have a high view of Scripture, as Michael does, and others I know who I love and honor in the Lord. Some commentators on Mark, as I've said, ignore this altogether and won't even preach on them. And yet, all they declare can be found in all four Gospels, to one degree or another. And the book of Acts is a fantastic endorsement of the truthfulness, even of the supernatural signs that follow. Although, I don't know of anyone who's... uh, What was that? (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Um, What I found is that in the book of Acts, you can find many of these things happening, and we'll come to that later. Maybe the Lord, therefore, has a special blessing for us today, because I felt burdened to bring this to you. So let's spite the devil who wants to deprive us of blessings by the three methods that I often encounter myself. He wants to stop us being blessed as churches and individuals. He loves to steal blessings from us, which we once had and once moved in. This is particularly true of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They get stolen. When did you last prophesy? When did you last pray in tongues? When did you last lay hands on a sick person to see them heal? It's got to be months. No, honestly, it's probably years now, some people will say. You've been stolen. You've been robbed. You've been mugged and robbed of something very precious then. And if they don't don't work, he'll make it stink to us. He'll make something controversial that shouldn't be controversial. He'll make it sound like we're all wacky and that we do unspeakable things in our churches that shouldn't be going on these days. And then these in-house arguments stumble us as to whether we should or should not believe things that appear to be in the Bible. And this denies many of God's people of God's good gifts to those people. These are not just useless activities. When an artisan, a plumber, or a car mechanic goes to fix a a water system in a house, or what's under the hood of your car, he usually takes with him, especially if it's an RAC service on the roadside, he'll have a van filled with just about everything he's going to need to get this car on the move again. He doesn't go with a screwdriver and a pair of pliers, and if that won't do it, we'll have to call somebody else. 
No, he has a whole toolkit, and God has given to his church a whole toolkit, and we're going to need everything that's in it. No wonder then, these are only representative tools to get the job done, but they're very important tools for us to have. Too many Christians are saying, no, Lord, to these things, to many of God's gifts for his church. How many of you know that the words no and Lord don't belong in the same sentence? Peter tried that once when Jesus wanted to wash his feet. It's recorded in John 13. Never, Lord, you will never wash my feet. That's another way of saying, no, Lord. And Jesus said, if you won't do this, you have no part in me. Well, I'm going to say yes to the Lord. If there's any doubt about it, I'm still going to say yes to the Lord. If it appears to be authentic and true. So these last verses that round out Mark's gospel do it beautifully. The alternative is that Mark's gospel fills with, ends with verse 8, which says, after this account of the appearances to them and the angel speaking to them, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of Mark's gospel. Does that sound like a cheery verse to you? Does that sound like, wow, what a climax to this gospel? It's amazing. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That sounds like the ending of a French existentialist novel to me that leaves you hanging in the air and you don't know what's going to happen. So some poor soul must have said, yeah, that can't be right. I'll write another ending. It may or may not be true. I'll make it up, but it will be more cheerful than where it actually come off it. Let's treat it as scripture unless we have absolute proof it isn't. And the fact that it is true, as I've said, bears witness in corroboration from the rest of the New Testament. So I'm very happy to preach this as divinely inspired. Now, this then is the radical Christianity of the New Testament, which goes blunt in every generation at some time or other, sometimes several times. These verses contain predictions and promises concerning Jesus' final commission. Of course, other versions are included in Luke and Matthew 28, and we regard them as very inspiring to us. Why not this one, then? This is the radical Christianity of the New Testament, and here it's prefaced with material that's unflattering to the disciples, rebuking their unbelief in verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, this is something that we often fall into, unbelief and stubbornness to believe. It's a state that is worthy of similar rebuke if it happens with us, just as it happened with the disciples. And we're often found in that state, if we're honest, worthy of a similar challenge. Here, it says he censured them. He censures his chosen apostles. They've all had several resurrection appearances, spectacular ones, but he's in need of censuring them. He tells them off for two reasons. See if you identify with them. One, their lack of faith. The word 
in Greek is apistia, and it means literally, they're no faith. What could have happened to it? How can you have had eyewitness testimony of Jesus dying on the cross and his body alive out from the tomb and have no faith? Well, you only have to think about yourself when you get into those black sulks and moods with God. And you read the New Testament and think, I'm not so sure. Apistia, no faith, is to be in a faithless condition. And there wasn't a man or woman in the building tonight who hasn't been in a faithless condition at several times in your life. Maybe it's a chronic one for some people. Have you ever prayed for something in faith and then been absolutely astonished that it happened? (laughs) Well, I have, too. But Jesus looks for faith but often finds none in us, just a total vacuum of faith. The parasites of our rationalistic mindset in the West, or peer pressure from people who will ridicule you for believing such nonsense. Sometimes it's due to your own personal doubts, and we all have those, but doubts often open the way to faith if they're dealt with properly. And then, of course, we have an invisible enemy, and demonic assaults will rob you of faith if you're not careful. They all shatter biblical faith until it's smashed and gone. We need a faith lift. You women maybe go to a salon for a facelift, but we should regularly come to church for a faith lift, because that's more valuable than some makeup. Okay? You get that? So that's the first problem that he challenges, lack of faith. The second is stubborn refusal. And this is one word in Greek, sclerocardia. Now you'll reckon, you probably recognize part of that noun, cardia. It's the word for the heart. But combined with sclero, sclerocardia is from sclero, hard, and cardia, heart. Hard-heartedness. It carries the idea of being cauterized. My stepfather tipped boiling water over him when he was a teenager, all down his arm. And my stepfather's arm was an ugly sight when his his, uh, shirt was rolled up to his armpit because all the skin had been mangled horrendously and coarsened by that burn. The wounds had healed up, but it was very hard tissue and ugly tissue. So he rarely burned his arms at all, and it was a shocking sight. Well, there's something like this going on here. The desensitizing and the insensitivity of the nerves in that place. He toughened up, but he couldn't feel or use that arm like he once was able to do. He was literally thick-skinned. And this is what Jesus is rebuking his disciples for. They're thick-skinned where they need to be totally persuaded and tender and vulnerable to truth, but they're not. They're hardened in their hearts, refusing to believe God. Philip Greenslade, my dear friend at CWR, once commented in one of his books about the caliber of pastors and ministers in much of the British church today. He said, for a long time, we've taken our leaders out of the deep freeze. That is, dead churches, 
stuffy colleges, liberal universities, and their unbelieving theological departments. And then we wondered why our Christianity is so cold and uninspiring. Well, if you get your pastor out of the deep freeze and he never thaws out, that explains why your Christianity is so cold and uninspiring. The faith of many clerics, in my experience, is dead to non-existent. Thank God for renewals and revivals that happen to bring them alive. I have a namesake called William Haslam, who was down in the Devon era, Truro, I think, parish vicar. And the congregation who sat under his ministry wanted to love him, so they prayed for God to reveal himself and do something to the pastor. His name was William Haslam. It might be a distant relationship. I don't know. I don't follow my family line. But within a matter of weeks or months, something came over William Haslam one Sunday morning at Matins. He started his sermon, and suddenly he took off. And the West Country people just said, Thanks be to God, the parson's been converted. (laughs) And he was. He became an astonishing evangelist and saw revival come to Truro. Do you believe that? That's what happened. Hallelujah. Now, the disciples here had refused to believe in the present-day activity of the risen Lord. And don't tell me you've not been in those doldrums yourself, because I know you have. We all have. They ignored the facts, verse 11. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. How do we get in that kind of a pit? Well, we do. They discounted the testimony of other believers, verse 13. These returned and reported to the rest, and they didn't believe it. Oh, it was verse 11 I meant, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. The, the, the death knell is they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. So they're hardened in their hearts. So they explained away, even in a personal appearance of Jesus, now risen from the dead, to those who had seen him alive. No wonder the Lord rebukes them. He needs to do a great deal of rebuking of his people sometimes. Some say seeing is believing, but then they never see anything much that's worth believing. But God's children believe without seeing. They believe on the authority and testimony of God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And so, we can then regularly see God do astonishing things in response to that faith. And I want to give you a faith lift tonight. The Lord Jesus stands before them with authority and risen power. And he has universal authority throughout all space because of his personal presence with us throughout all time. So this is a mighty Savior with a long reach and a long arm to touch us anywhere, even in St. Albans tonight on an industrial estate. So let's believe for something. Now, what Jesus is urging on us is bold witness here and reinforcing the priority of two important things. Number one, proclamation. Proclamation of the gospel message. And also, two, confirmation. 
confirmation of that message in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit active upon us and with us. Now this means we have a message that can be both seen and heard. Both heard and seen. When God shows up with power, people are going to listen and people are going to see things they've never seen before. So let's just spell this out very clearly. The first issue is its proclamation. Verse 15 to 16. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Its proclamation means that our witness is to be bold. We have one faculty to proclaim the gospel. It's our mouth and our speaking equipment, including our lungs and our tongue and the teeth and the movement of our lips. We can announce words with clarity and unashamed and bold that signify who Jesus is and what he can do for people's lives. That's our calling. It's everyone's calling. Preachers are trained to equip the saints to do the work of this ministry. We're not just keeping this proclamation ministry to ourselves. We want you involved too. So, our witness is putting Jesus and his cross in its rightful place in our hearts so it will find a lodging in its rightful place in other people's hearts. It was said of the 19th century theologian Matthew Arnold that he was a melancholy preacher who had, quote, mislaid the gospel. Well, there have been many of that tribe. Melancholy preachers have mislaid the gospel. And it's so true of many today. But let's make sure it's not true of us. We haven't mislaid the gospel. It's center stage. We have a magnificent obsession with Christ. And the Holy Spirit loves that too. And he wants Christ glorified. He will glorify me, Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And therefore, under his power, we cannot but glorify Jesus if we are looking to see people come to be attracted to him. Now, proclamation then. Let's talk about it. The method of proclamation is preaching. That is verbal announcement, telling the essential facts to be believed, and then explaining their true significance for people. People might have heard the facts, but they don't understand the significance of them. And that's where our grasp of theology should grow, that we know the implications of the simple facts of the gospel itself and all else that's in the Bible before this is through. And then we follow that with persuasive appeals for people to respond to those facts and believe them. I believe in preaching. I've been doing it since I was about 17. And you know I've seen a lot of people's lives impacted and changed by it. But not enough. I'll honestly admit that. Not enough. I'm hungry for more. And I believe in preaching because it's the only means to bring this about. And it changes churches. And it often changes the whole community around the church given enough anointing from the Spirit of God. In Kinderminster, 
in the Midlands in the 17th century, Richard Baxter, the parish minister, used to not only preach his heart out every Lord's Day, but he would visit every house in his village continuously to catechize them in the confession of faith. And that village was, by and large, almost totally converted during his ministry. I was in New York three years ago with my wife, and we went to 42nd Street in New York. And as we walked down there, I remembered from reading The Cross and the Switchblade, this is the place where David Wilkerson started his ministry to the street gangs. He would lived in the countryside as a Pentecostal pastor, way away from New York, and he had read a story in the newspaper of these youths who had been arrested for murder and drug trafficking and were being tried. And of course, Nicky Cruz was the main leader of that gang, and he had a burden from the Lord to uproot and go to New York and minister to these youths in New York. You've probably seen the film, which is not very good. The book is astonishing. It's never been out of print. I believe there's literally hundreds of millions of them that have been printed, or, or tens of millions of them, at least. On 42nd Street, that was the street we were walking, there are no prostitutes on the pavements anymore. There's no drug addicts on, on the pavement. There's no drug dealers on every corner. It's been cleaned up. It's been cleaned up for decades. It's an amazing story when you read it, and it's lasted. Take Yonggi Cho in South Korea, who became a believer. He was quite a young man. And then God told him that he was to plant a church. And he started with a few family and friends and others who wanted to join him in South Korea. In the 1980s, this church began to mushroom in size, building after building being built, until they had a building that holds something like 20,000 people. And then they were doing 10 services a day on a Sunday. He called it the biggest little church in the world because it had the feel of relationship and passion and connection to others and an astonishing gospel ministry that led to a million believers in the end in that church. The Pond Inlet Eskimos of Canada, I read about in the mid-90s during the time of the Toronto Wave of Blessing. And these people were decadent. The fathers and mothers were incestuous, the children were severely damaged. But there was a little prayer group of converted Christians there who started to play, pray for their tribe of Eskimos in that cold climate. And the Spirit of God came on them in that prayer meeting. And they could hear audible sounds of, uh, of heavenly singing. And then fire entered into the room. And I've heard a recording of this uh, meeting, because they were recording it to, to, to record the prayers so they could be re-prayed at home. And you can hear the moment when the Spirit comes, and all the groaning and crying out starts in this just one single room of believers. This led 
into a massive move of God among their people, with hundreds of people saved. You can't organize these things, but when God chooses to do them, they happen. Then in Pensacola, that same period in Texas, a million people visited a single uh, Assemblies of God church where Steve Hill had come to preach just for a week or two of evangelistic meetings. I think he was there for something like four years in all. And uh, the, the fruit and harvest of those times was phenomenal. The news went around the world. I was there in America not long after because that Toronto blessing brought tremendous move of God in my church in Winchester. And uh, we saw lots of people touched and changed lastingly by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened. The New Frontiers movement was massively impacted by it over several uh, Bible weeks during the summer. Um, It was very phenomenal. Uh, Most meetings, the whole floor would be filled with still bodies or groaning bodies or laughing souls. But this is God in revival, doing things for people. And so we ask this question, how and why does this happen? And the answer is, the content of the proclamation is good news. It's not just the method that preaching, it's the content, good news, centered on Christ himself. And the four great lists that Paul um, cites in 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. These are great facts. And our business is to, is to recount the occurrence of them and announce that this is history. It's real, it's tangible, it happened. But also the significance of them. Christ died for our sins. If you don't connect the death of Christ with the sins of the human race, you have no idea why he died. Was it some wasted martyrdom? Was it some foolish suicide pact he made with God? No, this was a death to undo death. Death was put to death itself in the death of Christ. And that's why you and I are alive spiritually this night. This is still impacting the world. And of course that he's buried is the proof that he was was dead. You don't bury people alive. The authorities know how to discern a dead man, and Jesus was dead, and therefore he was buried. But the third day, he rose from the dead. How do we know? He was seen. And this is God reversing all that destroyed the life of Jesus, and then empowering him with an eternal cosmic life that is going to change everything, including the whole universe eventually. This is a big gospel, folks. And these facts are facts, and I've discovered in my life that facts are facts, and facts are stubborn things. And I've built my life on these facts. They'll hold me up in time and in eternity, and they'll hold you up too. The bedrock, the absolute concrete foundations for everything God wants to do in our lives. Now, in 1995, I visited a remote village right up in the north of India called Sasatgrai. 
This was a very remote tribe. I don't know why I even went there, but somebody had got a, a New Frontiers magazine, and we were doing some ministry in Shillong, which was a former army base, but is now a heavily populated area of northeast India. And so we got a message, could we come 150 miles to Sasakre to this village? Because some of them have been converted recently. Would you come over and talk to them? So we did. And it wasn't the kind of trip I wanted to make. I didn't know what I would meet. I was told that they do animal sacrifices there. And the headman is a very high up witch doctor. So you don't want to go into a village like that unless you have to. But we had to, so we went. Me and my wife, that's all. And we went on a bus that took us hours to get there, breaking down and all the trouble and inconveniences you have. But when we got there, it was all true. Probably about 20 of them had already been converted. Their faces shone. They introduced us to the headman in his dark hut filled with skulls, animals and human skulls. They showed us an altar with fresh blood on it outside. Thankfully, it wasn't a human sacrifice, apparently. It was a goat that had been uh, slaughtered to ward off evil spirits. So much of the village has yet to be converted at this time by the gospel. But the fact that 20 of them had already responded to the gospel was a miracle. The gospel is always a miracle. And so the blood of Christ broke their sin and renewed their lives. And they wept as we preached this message to them. Wept in ways you don't really see very often in Britain. We all know all that. Yeah, tell me something we don't know. Well, they were told something they don't know, and they're still weeping about it. It's such a beautiful message to them. They do animal sacrifices to deal with their guilt, too. They don't do them anymore, the Christians, because there was one sacrifice once for all, and they're trusting that now, not the dead cat or a dog or a... Or a um, well, actually, they offered to kill a dog for us for supper that night. <laughs> and there was one running around my legs when we were sat outside a hut with four puppies chasing it. And I said to my wife, I hope that's not supper for tonight. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> and I said, we just don't eat dog. Sorry. They weren't offended. They understood. We were white people after all. So the scope of the proclamation here is all creation. So Jesus thinks big. And that means he's not just after you and me and Auntie Dor, just us three, no more. Jesus wants all people to hear this and have a chance to be persuaded of the facts, believe the significance of them, and then trust them that they are saving for their lives for all eternity. That's what he wants. He's mankind's and the whole world's saviour. Their only authorised saviour. There's no other name, no other name under heaven by which we can name that people can be saved by, the Bible says. So this is the name that needs to be announced and clearly explained and clearly described until Jesus becomes other people's magnificent obsession. How can the, a book of black and white print 
Make a pierced person lift off the page into your life. Someone you passionately follow for decades afterwards and will do so to the day of your death. It's not explicable without the power of the Holy Spirit who has a revelatory activity in all of this happening. He reveals things to us that we've never seen before and experiences that we've never had before. There's a testimony and a witness to our hearts. This is true. He's real. I've never seen Jesus, but I have seen Jesus. You can't be obsessed about someone you haven't seen unless in some deeper way you've already seen him and see him regularly in the pages of the New Testament. I often have tears come to my eyes when I'm reading the Gospels because I can see what's happening and I can feel the intensity of emotions those, these short narratives evoke. I feel them to the point where my imagination is flooded with passion for Christ and his care for people and his remedying of lives. I'm just about to finish a series on encounters with Jesus, which have been consecutive for 21 weeks at Westminster Chapel in the morning. And it's done a number on me. The last one I'm going to do is on the, la- is the judgment seat of Christ. I've not called it that because it will put people off. It should put people off. It's actually moved my heart and done a number on me, even preparing it. So all I'm going to see, call it is something innocuous like meeting Jesus face to face, but they don't know what they're going to be exposed to. Because <laughs> I do, I do. This is awesome stuff. If, if people aren't crying or shaking at the end of that sermon, I don't know what will be wrong with them. At any rate, there's a power in the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to us. And the response to this proclamation is believe and be baptized. Believing is being con- persuaded and convinced that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and can do what he said he can do so that you give your all totally to him. You surrender your allegiance to lesser things and give your whole allegiance to him as the greatest person, the greatest thing in your life now. I did that when I was a boy at 14, listening to Billy Graham in the Methodist Central Hall where it was being relayed from the Central Park, some some venue in, in London in 1967. I was 14 years of age. I sat right up. On the, in the balcony with my mate, Neil Billinge. He was good cop in my high school class. Bad cop was David Webster, and he used to regularly tell me I was going to hell, and he'd describe it to me. And he put the fear of God in me. But good cop, Neil, told me clearly what the gospel can do for me if I believed it. And he invited me to the Billy Graham relay. And there was a appeal at the end, and Cliff Richards sang, My mum liked Cliff Richard. What's he doing up there, I thought? He must be a Christian. And he testified to the fact that he was. And then Billy began his appeal. I want you to get up out of your seats. And he said, if you're sitting in a venue, your friends will wait for you. The buses, if you came by buses, and all the things he does. And he said, I want you to get up out of your seats. If you're in a venue in another city... Uh, come down, the stewards will tell you where to go, and someone will talk with you. And I sat there, not stubbornly, but just scared in my seat. 
I was already persuaded that I should be a Christian. And Billy's calling me to go public in a, in a room full of 800-plus people. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if Jesus will have me. That was my biggest problem. That I would go down, do whatever they wanted me to do, and he wouldn't have me. So I was the last person that night to get up out of my seat. And I had to climb over people, embarrassedly, from the middle of the row, to do it and go down the steps with everybody looking, and then make my way to the back halls where a counselor counseled me. And he had me. Jesus had me. I can remember walking out onto Lime Street in Liverpool on a sunny evening in July and thinking, the whole world looks different. And it has ever since. So this is the gospel to be believed. And also, not only giving your life totally, being baptized, which is a public confession that seals something. You have the courage to show that you have believed and trusted the world's only true Savior. And we always tell people in advance of it, this is a burial service for you. It's a burial for the dead. We're burying you in Jesus' name. And then it's, of course, a bath for the dirty because it signifies the total cleansing of sin. That's why we immerse them completely. It's a severance from the past because it has echoes of the crossing of the Red Sea. They didn't escape Egypt when they left Pharaoh's courts and bondage. They escaped Egypt when they got to the other side of the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were drowned. That sealed their freedom. And baptism is meant to be a witness of total freedom from our sordid past and a public launch of our glorious future. So it's your exodus from slavery when you are baptized. In Britain, we have millions of baptized unbelievers. In an idol-worshipping culture, I don't know how many of those unconscious infants know of anything that happened to them at that point early on. And we have millions of unbaptized believers who don't see the need of being immersed in Jesus' name. But Jesus commanded baptism of new believers, and it's our joy in the church I lead to do that for them. That's the proclamation. Now, there's the most controversial part, the confirmation. Christ promises that supernatural signs will follow people who go with this gospel, and it will follow that gospel, and us in following Jesus. When his people go with the gospel in the way Jesus describes here, Jesus sends endorsements of its truth for those people who are open for this to happen. And this list is only typical. It's not exhaustive. It's only a selection of five components. And each example is so essential and yet so beautiful. David Watson led a gospel mission in a parish church in the north of England. It was based in York and the uh, St. Michael Le Belfry Church for a decade or more. 
And uh, I heard him preach at a university mission the first year I was at Durham University in 1972. And I was totally knocked out by his preaching, as were many people who came to the Lord that night. And what David Potts, uh, Watson did was do a mission in a parish church uh, further north than that. And I read about it later. And at the first meeting, apparently, he wrote, an old lady said to him, Now, Mr. Watson, you do realize that we do not want anything supernatural happening in our church this weekend, don't you? And he said, No, I didn't. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do them anyway. Because he followed his word with signs following. And that's what Jesus is advocating here. I have a friend who once hid all his Christmas presents of chocolate upstairs in a secret, secret hiding place in a compartment behind a wall and then forgot about them. And it was about a year later, maybe 18 months later, that he remembered, I got all that chocolate last Christmas. And he went hunting for it. And it had all got eaten by insects, warped by the summer heat, and moldy. You know, don't keep your gifts under wraps. That's what I'm trying to say to you. These are meant for public consumption. They're not there just for you know, special occasions. We are moving in these things regularly. Christ said they would accompany us. That means they'll hang around us if we're willing to do that. They're going to mark our steps. You know, sometimes when you see a snowfall, sometimes rarely in winter in Britain, but kids will be out there any chance, and they'll sort of stomp through the snow and they'll leave footprints everywhere they go, curling around and crossing over each other. Do you know, we ought to be leaving a whole catena, vast volume of footprints to show where we've been with the gospel, where the lives have been touched, where things have happened in people's lives supernaturally, when healings have occurred, when there's been reversal of what doctors have predicted are incurable, conditions that people have. Even if it's trivial things, Christ, I've learned, loves to deal with things just to bless them. And so, this is the Holy Spirit's anointing, and we should expect it. They're not just for apostles like Peter and Paul. Jesus says, these signs will accompany those who believe. How, how many of you are believers here tonight? I don't want to embarrass anybody who isn't. How many of you are believers here tonight? Well, these signs will follow you if you believe. I don't know if you've ever seen any, but it's about time then that you did. Don't you agree? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, a prophetic teacher if there ever was one, he said there should be a heavenly quality about us which marks the church out as a divine thing. But the greatest proof of our weakness these days is that there is no longer anything terrible or even mysterious about us. Do you know, it should be a bit scary to come into a church that has this kind of life, and yet something that makes people really curious, because there's mysterious things going on there. 
And lots of Britons want to experience something transcendent and mysterious that they can't explain or put in a box or deny didn't happen. They want to see that. And they love it when they do, if it's authentic. So believing Jesus and moving in his spirit is the root to the clean supernatural power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. And they're called signs here because they confirm our connection with Jesus, who did all of these things himself. He went about doing good and healing all those who were being oppressed of the devil, Peter says in Acts 10, verse 20. Verse 38. So they validate the gospel centered upon Christ. Now we'll just define these so that you will know what you're getting yourself into. These five promises follow, and they're not only valid for those times and places, they're valid for our times and places. I've discovered this over the years, and you won't talk me out of it, because I've seen them all happen. In my name, they will drive out demons. Ergo, you are likely to encounter demons sometime or other. I never thought I'd ever encounter demons. I knew they existed because I'd read the New Testament, but never thought you'd encounter them in the West. But when you become a pastor, you find out you're going to encounter demons regularly, and some of them will be haunting your church members. That's what I found out let alone the non-Christians there. So, if we're going to be likely to encounter demons, you need to know how to deal with them. As you can see, the apostles did in Acts 13 and Acts 19, which led to a revival in Ephesus in Acts 19. And a slave girl who was used as a fortune teller, accurate or not, we don't know, probably because people pay good money for it. Demons know things, so they'll tell their agents what to say. They're also liars, so you never know whether they're telling the truth through that agent. But that fact that Paul freed this girl from these demons, so she was back in her right mind and never wanted them back again in her life at all, was the trigger that started an escalating revival in Ephesus. It's one of the most wonderful stories in the whole of the book of Acts. So Christ gives us power over the enemy so we can take authority in situations where dark powers seem to be dominant. And that is the power he gives to all of his Christians, his followers. We take authority over them. We don't run at them. We take authority over them. And we take authority in Jesus' name because they won't leave people voluntarily. They like to hold control over people's lives. So you have to command them in Jesus' name to come out. And I've seen that happen. One was one of the most memorable men I ministered to was in the new building I was describing in the seminars that we purchased. And um, he came in, and he was agitated in every service he was in. And he was squirming in his seat of the worship, of the preaching. And he kept running out before the service was over. So I had a private conversation with him. And I said, come to my home. I'd like to talk to you about what is troubling you. Would you be willing to do that? He said, I will. What he told me was he was bullied in his school years. And he was a wimpy guy, little guy. 
thin-skinned and weedy-looking man. And he said, I started reading books on martial arts and on how to deal with people who attack you. And he said, I also started reading books about Hitler's Germany and Hitler's philosophy. And I became a convinced Nazi. And I joined the British Army so I could be stationed in Germany because I wanted to look out veterans from Hitler, from the Hitler period. And he said, I sold my soul to those dark powers and I gave myself over to ruthless violence. If anyone dared to touch me, I would beat them to a pulp in the playground. And so some new power had entered me that made me not only courageous, but strong. And no one would touch me after that. And that has been my philosophy. But I've been coming to your church because I met a girl who befriended me from your church. They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. He just liked her. And every time he came in, he knew what he was hearing was true. But he was getting disturbed demonically. So having heard this story, I did what I usually do. I said, well, in these cases, there's things that you need to do to be freed. And one is to destroy everything you have. Do you have any paraphernalia that's Nazi-orientated? I've got thousands of pounds of it, he said. Uniforms. I was stationed in Germany. I met top Nazis, still alive. They mentored me. They took me to the places they used to do their sacred rites. And I engaged with all of those rites with them. I've got lots of paraphernalia, medals, iron crosses, uniforms, everything. I said, well, you're going to have to dispose of them and burn them. We're going to hammer into bits all of those valuable pieces of memorabilia of the Nazi period because I don't want you to be contaminated. Do you know he repented? He repented so thoroughly that he smiled, smashing these stuff up on our church pavements. This was a sacrifice to me before the Lord. And it was a renunciation of everything. He burned all the uniforms. He got rid of everything. And he believed in Jesus Christ that day. And his total life was changed, freed from the demonic. Now, they're not always that extreme. But the Jesus who freed him can freed you and me of anything that has troubled us from our past and in our present. We take authority. No wonder the devil hates these verses. That's what my conclusion is. They'll speak in new tongues. So you're going to need a lot, a hotline to heaven. I pray in English like you do. But there are times when you don't know what to pray. Isn't that right? You've run out. You've exhausted your means of praying. This is why God gives us a gift of unknown languages that the Spirit will pray through us. And he'll give us words to say that only God can understand. But they are meaningful words, even if they sound very strange. They're called glossolalia in the New Testament, and that translates as speaking in new languages. Speaking in languages, for short. So I believe they are genuine languages, not just gobbledygook. And the Spirit helps us pray to God in languages we've never learned, because we're articulating things we couldn't put into words under our own abilities alone. 
They will speak in new tongues, he says. And these tongues are for praise and for intercession and prayers for healing or ministering deliverance to the tormented. Demons will go sometimes when God prompts me to pray in tongues over a person. I tell them what I'm going to do. I'll tell them it will be the Holy Spirit doing it. But you're going to feel the impact of this, I tell them. So don't worry. This is going to bring God's benefits to you. I'd sum it up like this. It's like soldiers in combat sending a scrambled call to headquarters for air cover, asking God for air support in a battle. And he'll send whatever help we need. It may be invisible angels, but what he's going to do is send the help, and it'll be on its way immediately. We pray in in tongues to God. Then I combine the next two, which are the most um, controversial. They will pick up snakes and drink poison and not be hurt. When did you last do that? This is the one, I believe, that brings this account into disrepute. Because it seems to be urging us to do dangerous things just for the hell of it. They'll pick up snakes and not be harmed. They will drink poison and not be hurt. No, I believe the import of this is that in this mission that we're involved in and subtly taking on with the devil to free his victims, you will face mortal danger many times. Satan would love to kill you. And if he could kill us, he would. I think you should get that in your head. What God wants to put into us is a sense that our life is secondary to our mission. But I don't unnecessarily risk my life. I put my life in danger only when I believe the Lord's told me to do that. Now, Paul often did put himself in danger. And he lists in 2 Corinthians 11 some of the horrendous experiences he went through. This is not, therefore, an invitation for us to mess around with dangerous things for no reason, just to prove that we can do it. Of of course, Paul got bitten by a snake on Malta in Acts 27 and 28. The story is recounted. But notice that he shook it off. And the natives on the island who knew what species of snake this was and how dangerous and deadly it was were amazed that he wasn't swelling up because any venom that goes into your hand is going to get into your bloodstream and it's going to cause something terrible to happen to you. Not with Paul. He shook it off into the fire and there was no harm at all done to him. So it shows that when God chooses, he can save you from mortal danger. And he will do it again and again for his servants, if that is his will. So this is not an invitation to deliberately fool around with risking your life. I know there are many idiots on both sides of the Atlantic who go... (laughs) who go climbing up cliffs. And what's that jumping called? Well, base jumping on huge buildings and climbing dangerous buildings with only few handholds that are safe for them. We are not to deliberately put our life at risk and die prematurely. 
It makes me sick to watch young people do that. Young men on documentaries who are risking the one life they have prematurely, who may not have ever heard of Jesus yet. And I don't think that's a very cool thing to do. I think it's an idiotic thing to do. You want a life? Get it in Christ. He'll give you thrills galore. And none of them will harm you. <laughs> let's, be, let's be real about it. Now, nor with poison. Jesus doesn't arrange snake-handling meetings like they do in Pentecostal churches in some of the southern states of America. Do you know the regular news stories of people dying from handling these poisonous snakes? Copperhead um, rattlers with the most powerful venom. Why would you want to mess with that while you've got a life to serve Jesus with? What point are you making? Is this some kind of ego trip? Do you want to prove something? These are not the motives a, mo a godly Christian moves in. Uh, you can see I'm angry about that. The picking up of them is when they pick you up, I suppose, I'm trying to say. And so we don't put strychnine in the communion wine to prove that we are immune to poison. We're not going to substitute grape juice for Domestos Bleach next Sunday morning's communion service, are we? Why would we want to do that? What have we got to prove? No, this is not an invitation to be an idiot. This is a promise that you are immortal until your life's work is done. And this is a promise you need to claim. Because that trip to India I mentioned to you, I got salmonella in the last week of it in Mumbai, which is a city, not out in the countryside. And that salmonella went into my system for a week. And at the end of the week, on Easter Sunday morning, where I was looking forward to preaching in the morning and at a baptism service in the evening. That morning, I was just shaving in the bathroom when a pain came to my abdomen here. That was the worst pain I've ever experienced. In the space of three or four minutes, I was on my knees, crawling down the passageway to get back to my bedroom when my wife was still in bed. I got into the bed, and then the groaning and the moaning and the crying out started, and I couldn't get comfortable. I rolled back and forth, back and forth. An ambulance was called. I was taken eventually to intensive care. This salmonella poisoning had triggered an attack of acute pancreatitis in my pancreas. Very rare thing. Only three have been recorded on the world's computers at that point. The doctors told me that. They researched it. We've never seen that cause, acute pancreatitis. Your pancreas, which is like a carrot-shaped organ, explodes. And it spills enzymes all over your abdominal cavity that start eating away at your other organs. So the, hence all the pain. I was out of action for six months with that. The first six weeks were decisive. The first six weeks, I was just gaga, drugged to the eyeballs in life support, in intensive care for all those weeks with a young wife with three children under seven years of age coming in to see me. How much of a trial is that? At agony for my wife because the chances of dying are one to two percent. 
But people went to prayer for me. And against all the odds, I survived and then thrived. I came out of, I was this weight, and this is what I looked like when I got salmonella. Uh, 12 stone. I lost 56 pounds. That's a sack of spuds from this point onwards. So I ended up like a Belson victim on that bed. Every bone in my body could be seen. I could barely stand. I couldn't even pull open a sprung door. And God healed me. I've lost my pancreas totally. So I have to supplement my diet with enzyme tablets. I'm also a diabetic because it produces insulin. So I have to eject before every meal, every day, and I've done that for 30 years now. But don't I look pretty healthy to you? My wife tells me, you look 50, you don't look like 60. Well, I'm flattered by that, and it's very kind of her to say so. But every day, I'm just delighted that I've lived. And this is the conclusion I had came to, that I announced earlier that you all should have. I am immortal on this earth until my time has come. And that time is not going to be decided by the devil. It's going to be decided by God. And you know, if you know that, you'll say and do everything God tells you to say, which is why Jesus gave us this promise. You need to say and do everything Jesus gives you to say and do. And if that is not your mentality right now, let this gospel message get into your heart. If you're ever at risk for the gospel... Jesus has all the power in heaven and earth to save you if he chooses, and mostly he does. But there will come a day when you may die, and it may be a martyr's death that you didn't volunteer for, but God has arranged for you, because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this wonderful promise to end with, they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Put your hands up in front of your face. This is the most wonderful asset you and I have because of the many uses we put our hands to do every hour of the day. I would hate to lose my eyes, but I'd probably also hate to lose my ability to touch and feel and make and write and use hands. These hands, however, have a supernatural potency that God is willing to give us. The anointing of the Spirit that's on us can flow through our hands into sick people's bodies and convey the healing power of Jesus to them. God gives men salvation and wholeness. So it means that this very declaration, you will encounter some sick people and some very sick people, like I have as a pastor. And it's not just going to happen in the future. We can taste this healing power now. People all around us are sick and tired of being sick and tired, aren't they? And they are physically ill. Others are mentally ill. Some are spiritually ill. There may be demonic components to that. Others emotionally ill. But I believe God will and often does heal people in all kinds of conditions like this through his human agents, us. Sometimes these are instant, other times they're progressive in their lives. And we, pr- we pray for them on a regular basis to watch incremental improvement happen in their lives. 
God deals with chronic sicknesses. God deals with psychosomatic sicknesses. That just makes you as ill as anyone with a virus because your mind and your heart and emotions are affecting your body. And God can deal with that. And similarly with organic illnesses and demonic sicknesses, even emotional damage to our souls. As I know all too well, growing up in a broken home, Christ has significantly healed me from all the damage that was done in that sordid and dark uh, adversarial background. A.W. Tozer therefore said, The Christian who goes out without faith in wonders will return without fruit, and lack of fruit over any long period of time argues lack of power as certainly as the sparks fly upward. I think as you go down the high streets of many major British towns and you see churches and steeples and places of worship, the church can often dress itself up like a begging mission. Have you seen those thermometers out of the side of some of the churches? Save our steeple fund. And then it has a thermometer that registers a £50,000 that's come in. We've got only got £250,000 to go. And they're appealing to the public who don't even visit their church and aren't even Christians. We're a begging mission. We look like a begging mission. We act like one. But we're not a begging mission. The Church of Jesus Christ is a blessing mission. It's a giveaway culture. We give things free. We do things without any obligation. We love people. We want them to know God's love. And we want to demonstrate it ourselves. And what I've discovered over the years is that the gospel we preach is as simple as A, B, C. But the people we preach it to generally are D, E, F. Come on! So it's not only words that they need, they sometimes need to see signs that God loves them. To see His touch come on their lives. His healing impact them. And that's why one bishop put it like this. How is it that wherever the Apostle Paul went, there was always either a a riot or a revival? But wherever I go, they simply serve cucumber sandwiches and tea. Well, one answer to that might well be that they've ignored this part of the Gospel of Mark, that we have more to offer people than a Saturday afternoon picnic. We have the Gospel of God, and we have the signs that Jesus promises will accompany it. If the early church of the first century needed these signs, and they clearly did in the book of Acts, then the adult church of the 21st century needs them too. I think that's clear logic, And I think it's something God is willing to do for us as his people. In fact, we have his word on it. uh, uh, Look at the final words of Mark's gospel, and that's it. Sorry to have kept you so long. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompany it. 
Usually, when I preach on any of the themes like this, or we plan for a healing service, I urge our team to try and hear from God. If there's anything the Lord would indicate he needs and wants to heal. And um, one of the reasons I went up there was not only just to review my notes, but to see if God would drop anything in my heart for people here tonight. I never know whether these are true, but I'm regularly surprised that nearly every one of them is recognized by people who have these conditions. So we're going to finish our meeting by praying for the sick.